The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning. The scripture for today is Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 through 15. If you are reading from the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 93. When you're ready, please stand for the reading of God's word. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her, he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity. A widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing to truck forward and through our series of studying this book, the book of Leviticus. We find ourselves here, you saw in the Slack post, in chapters 21 and 22, which circles back around to the priests and their calling. This is what we saw similar back in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And so now Moses is swinging back through and talking about how does this idea of holiness, if you remember what we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, this idea to be holy is to be set apart to be set apart to God, to look different, to be different, because you are different, you have been redeemed by the living God. What does this mean now for those who are spiritual leaders of God's people? I'm going to make an argument here that what is being said to the priests in an Old Testament setting like chapters 21 and 22 most definitely applies to someone like myself, elders, deacons, deaconesses, community group leaders, that kind of thing, but it's not just for them. It is also for anyone who finds themselves in the family of God, like we've been singing about this morning. Thus, these verses here before us and the spiritual truths they are teaching us are not just for pastors of churches, but they're for every single believer 
who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So we're going to hit pause. We're going to pray. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to make these words that lie before us pierce our hearts so that we might see Christ, and then we'll dive in to the text. Okay, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are holy. You are truly otherly. You are set apart. You are unblemished. You are pure. You are perfect. You are unstained by sin. And you call us to be holy just as you are holy. Now that simple command at least helps me to see that I don't have within me what it takes to obey that command. And it shows me the one person I absolutely need is the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows me that I need Him. I need His righteousness, His perfection, His unblemishedness, His holiness applied to my account. Thank you that through Christ, faith in Him, that can be be had. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes from verses about holiness and spiritual leadership to see the Lord Jesus Christ magnified, to see Him exalted. Lord, where we are weary, would you help us to come to Jesus? Where we have doubts about God, Would you, in your kindness, move toward us? Where we're just tired, spiritually speaking. Where we're failing to see the goodness of Jesus. Grace and the mercy that can be found in him. Would you come to us, speak to us even now lifting our eyes to look to Jesus. Lord, I don't have that power and I don't have that strength to do it. I am a mere man who needs Jesus. And so that's why we look to the Holy Spirit. His power, His strength, His desire to put the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're asking, Father, that You would do this the Holy Spirit to turn our eyes to cling to and collapse in faith upon the Savior who gave His life so that sinners might be saved and have eternal life. Jesus, help us. It's in the name of Christ our King, I pray. Amen. Well, our sermon title, as I said, or, um, um, is this morning is Holiness and Leadership, referencing what I said a little while ago. The main idea that we're going to see this morning from Leviticus 21, I'm going to hone in on that specific chapter, is this, that spiritual leaders, so God calls men and women, spiritual leaders, spiritual leaders are called to live holy lives 
that are worthy of imitation. So remember that the back half of Leviticus is often called the holiness code. It is God speaking to His people, showing them what set-apart people look like. To be holy as Yahweh is holy looks like something. And the answer to what does this something look like looks like chapters 17 all the way forward to the end of the book. Now we come to this place where he's going to zoom in on what it means to be spiritual leaders, priests who live holy lives worthy of imitation. But notice that as we take that truth and bring it forward and apply it to you and me, we're going to see that as spiritual leaders are called to holy lives worthy of imitation, they are ultimately going to point forward to a person. They're going to ultimately point forward to your need and to my need for Jesus. You see, ever since uh, chapter 17, we've rolled forward from that chapter up to these chapters that we find ourselves in this morning. There has been a common theme, and the common theme has been this, Yahweh's call for all His people to be holy as He is holy, to be set apart as He is set apart. And now that we come to chapters 21 and 22, the Lord God is specifically saying, while this is a command, be holy as I am holy. This covers everybody. If you remember in chapter 19, it began with a little bit of a different phrase where it wasn't just Yahweh spoke to Moses and Moses was to talk to Aaron. It was Yahweh spoke to Moses as Moses was to talk to all the congregation. It was the all y'all of chapter 19, that this is what it means to be a redeemed one, to be holy as he is holy. Now, God, in this chapter, 21 and 22, he is specifically turning to the spiritual leaders, the priests, the Old Testament priests of the day, and saying, if this is true of everyone, it is especially true of you as a spiritual leader. In Israel, to be a priest was a holy calling. It was a calling to be set apart. You were set apart in a different way to be the spiritual leader of God's people. But the verses before us in chapter 21 are moving beyond holiness or a set-apartness that is applied to the office of priest. So if you go back into chapter 8, what you saw was as Moses and Aaron, or I'm sorry, as Aaron and his sons were being set apart... Or being made holy to this office of being priest. This is true by being a spiritual leader in this way. They were, in a sense, holy. They were set apart. Not everybody could be a priest. Only Aaron, his sons, and those in his line could be a priest. So in a sense, just being a priest, answering that calling meant you were holy. But you know, as well as I know, it is possible to serve in places of leadership that might set you apart from the rest, but not truly be set apart to the Lord in your heart, in your attitude, and in your actions. You can see an instance of this in the Old Testament where Samuel's sons, Eli and Hophni, if I remember right, were priests, but they were complete dirtbags abusing the system, not truly holy in heart, holy in mind, not truly seeking to honor the Lord. 
And so what Leviticus 21 and 22 is saying, listen, while it is true, you might be a holy one in the sense that you are set apart to serve as priest, the priests, the spiritual leaders of God's people are to meet a higher standard to where they are also to be holy with their behaviors, holy in what they believe they are to be those whose private lives and public lives are marked by holiness. Remember again, holiness. To be holy as Yahweh is holy is to be set apart. It's to be distinguished from the rest. And this holiness is to affect every area of life. That is what the back half of Leviticus is about. Now, this every area of life is moving beyond things like the food you eat, hygiene, sexuality, marriage, family, and it's moving to the internals, the heart, the mind of those who are called to be spiritual leaders. Holiness in attitude of heart and holiness in in conduct that flows from this holiness and attitude of heart. This is what's expected of spiritual leaders. Now, you hear me say all of these things, and it really just makes sense, right? That Yahweh would expect this call of holiness for spiritual leaders. If he again intends for all his people to be holy, then certainly he intends for the spiritual leaders of his people to also be holy. We hear this and we're just like, well, that, that just makes sense. Of course, Yahweh would want that for, for spiritual leaders. Just like the Levitical priests of old, you bring that forward. So we would say elders, pastors, overseers of a church, deacons, deaconesses, people who serve as community group leaders like here at Delta Church. Surely we would say, yes, they are called to the same standard of holiness, holiness in the private life, holiness in public life. But the potential danger that lies before us right now in preaching a sermon from chapters like these is that if we are here this morning and you're hearing the words coming out of my mouth and you go, well, I am not an elder of a church, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a deaconess, I'm not a community group leader or the like, then what I am tempted to do right now is just to completely shut down, write off this sermon as a bust. Hey, you win some, you lose some. Sometimes you show up and the sermon applies to me. Sometimes you show up, the sermon doesn't apply to me. Apparently this doesn't apply to me because I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a deaconess, I'm not a community group leader, etc. We think that there's nothing here in chapters like Leviticus 21 and 22 for me. After all, I'm not a spiritual leader in these ways. But what we can do is correct course on this improper way of thinking by going into the New Testament and remembering that in Christ Jesus, every follower of Jesus is called a priest. That's just New Testament language. You go into Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, that verse refers to Christians as priests. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle calls the church, those men and women who have been born again and folded into the family of God, calls them a royal priesthood made up of men and women who are priests unto God. 
So while you may not hold an official office of spiritual leadership, this doesn't mean you are not a spiritual leader in some way. As a spouse, you are a spiritual leader. Think about what a priest does. In the simplest way to bring down to the lowest level, what did the priests do in the Old Testament? They were the mediators. They were the gap fillers. There was the people of God on one hand. There was God on the other hand. And the ones who stood in the middle representing people to God and representing God to the people, bringing the people before God, representing and showing what God is like to the people were who? They were the priests. And so now as the New Testament says, you are a priest, I am a priest, because we are in Christ Jesus looking to him for salvation, we now have the similar kind of Old Testament priest role in the sense that we are gap fillers. Not the ultimate gap filler, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one mediator between God and men who can bring sinners to God, representing God to men. But in a sense, in our marriages, to our spouses, what are we doing? We are priesting one another when we stand in the gap. And say, wife, I want you to see God and I'm here to learn from God. Follow God and show God what God is like to you. And the wife can do that to the husband. For some of us, we are priests, spiritual leaders in our homes to our children. You have children on one hand, God on the other. What are we doing? We are bringing our children, showing them what God is like as we seek to imitate God in holiness. Like we saw last week, what are we doing? We're priesting to our children, showing God what he is like to our little ones. Think about your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. See, you are a royal priest in Christ Jesus, says the New Testament. Thus, in some way, some shape, some form, we are spiritual leaders. In various ways, you stand the gap like the priests of old, not only leading people to God, but also speaking to God about people. So what this means then is verses like we find in Leviticus 21, guess what? They're not obsolete for those of us, non-elders, non-deacons, non-deaconesses, non-community group leaders. It's actually very pertinent for all of us because all of us in some way, shape, or form are called to be holy and that holiness applies to the way we lead in our homes and our children, around our neighbors, in our workplaces, or in the church. And so what now we can say is these verses before us are actually God's word for not just me, someone like me, but they're actually God's word for you. So now all of a sudden, holiness and leadership in these verses are very, very pertinent. So from these truths, setting the stage and the context for Leviticus 21, we can come to our first point. And our first point is this, that spiritual leaders are to be worthy of imitation. The chapter almost perfectly splits right in half. And in the first 15 verses, what we see is the way holiness applies to the way we priest and lead others in our priesting by calling spiritual leaders royal priests to be worthy of imitation. As spiritual leaders, 
Old Testament priests were to be models of holiness and show others how to be a holy people. So think about it. If the people of God in the time of Leviticus were to understand God, know God, see God, interact with Him, be able to understand truths about Him, one way they could do this was by looking to their leaders and saying, because the leader acts this way, thinks this way, speaks this way, lives this way, does this, does not do that. They are imaging something true about God in those moments. In other words, this call for Old Testament priests to be models of holiness and thus showing others how to be holy, what these priests were doing was they were just simply exemplifying what the author of Hebrews would eventually come to write In Hebrews 13, verse 7, where the author says, Remember your leaders. Remember those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and what? Imitate their faith. So even in the New Testament, it picks up on this idea of those who are leaders, priests. Old Testament or New Testament, royal. We are to be worthy of imitation, lives that point to God. So what Leviticus 21 does then is says this, I recognize there are a thousand ways that I could roll out before you the way spiritual leaders are supposed to have lives worthy of imitation, but I'm not going to give you a thousand, I'm going to give you two. As examples of how people in spiritual leadership can image a God who is holy. And it zooms in on two key areas of life. What does it look like to mourn the death of a loved one? So death. And then what does it look like in marriage? Mourning and marriage. That is what we find in the first 15 verses. And the author is doing this in order to give examples again of what holy lives of worthy imitation looks like for spiritual leaders. So the first thing we can see is this. Living holy lives worthy of imitation means this. Spiritual leaders will not mourn death like the world. Our holiness is even meant to invade how we approach death. In the mattering things of life, and what I mean by that is this, in the areas of life that just matter to us, loved ones is right up there at the top, and then when those loved ones pass in death. Those aren't times in life where we just sort of go, "Mm, well, you know, it matters. We grieve, we weep, we mourn. The question is, how does holiness invade even mourning in death, grief in death, so that we can say something true about God and His holiness to a world that mourns and grieves in death differently from those who've been redeemed. That is what is going on in these verses, verses 1 through 6 and verses 10 through 12. Yahweh is saying, because you're a priest... Aaron and Aaron's sons, you are called to mourn death, grieve in death, not like the world, but actually like those who have hope of eternal life. 
So look starting there in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron. Here's what you're going to say to them. No one, no priest, shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister. Attending funerals and therefore being around a corpse, that's just part of life. And it's a part of life for virtually everybody. We are all created with a limit. Psalm 90 says our days are numbered. We don't know what the number of those days are, but there is a number. We're all on the countdown. And so death and grieving, being around these realities, it's just, it's just part and parcel of what it means to live in this fallen world. But God is saying something to his spiritual leaders, to these priests, that in the old covenant they were not to have anything to do with the dead unless the deceased were part of his family. That's what the rule, the command was for for those who were priests. But notice verse 5, neither was the priest to make bald patches on their heads nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. That's a little weird at first. It's like, what, like the guy can't go to the barber? Like, what, what's going on here, right? So it's, it's not just that. What you need to know is that in the context of the time that Leviticus 21, that these things are going on, these practices during the death of a loved one, the way the pagan religions, in other words, the non-Yahweh-worshipping religions of the time, the way they grieved death was by making bald patches, shaving off the edges of their beards, making cuts on their bodies. And so what Yahweh is saying is this, I understand that the world says grieving death looks like X, but I'm calling you to not walk and live and look like X. I'm calling you to something separate. I'm calling you to be set apart. I'm calling you to grieve death differently in this way. And then in this way, by not doing the bald patch, beard shaving, cutting of the body, Israel's priests would stand out as different. They would be holy in this way. Now, scan down to verse 10. What you see is that in these first 15 verses, what Moses is doing is he's saying, priests... Not the chief priest, but priest. This is how you are to be holy in the world of death. And this is how you're to be holy in the world of marriage. And then he goes over to the chief priest and says, this is how you're to be holy in the realm of death. And then this is how you're to be holy in the realm of marriage. And so when you come to verse 10, what you see is that he's talking to the chief priest about what it looks like for him to be holy and not mourn death like the world mourns. Verse 10, the priest who is chief among his brothers, so there's the chief priest, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments. Here it is. This chief priest shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. Again, the pagan ways of mourning death. But notice this. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. The standard ramps up for the chief priests. Now, at first glance, you hear these things and they seem extremely harsh, extremely uncaring. How uncaring and how unloving of God 
that if you're the chief priest and your father dies, you can have nothing to do with it. It seems like a cruel, vindictive God. For some of us, we're like, ah, I knew it. I knew that's just exactly the way he was. But remember what is being done here. In setting the standard in Leviticus 21 for his spiritual leaders, God was telling his people to have nothing to do with pagan ways of mourning death. It's not that the priest couldn't grieve and mourn. He couldn't grieve and mourn like the world. And in this way, the spiritual leaders of the living God would distinguish themselves as different from priests in pagan religions. You see, in the mattering things of life, the death of a loved one is just right up there among the top, is it not? Like when someone we care for greatly, love deeply, when they die... It matters. It really does matter. And grieving for a loved one is a natural part of the mourning process. The Bible isn't saying right now, do not grieve. The Bible isn't saying, do not mourn. It's saying, do not grieve, do not mourn as those who have no hope. For the pagan religions in the Old Testament times, that was it. Death was death. It was done. There was extreme mourning, cutting of flesh, shaving off hair, trimming off beard. I mean, it was truly in a sense like you were unzipping yourself because grandpa's gone, my sister's gone, my mom is gone, and they're never coming back. I have no hope. I had the amount of time that I had with them, and it's never going to come back again. But what we know as those who've been redeemed in Christ Jesus is that we can grieve and we can mourn in death, but we grieve and mourn as those who do have hope because our Savior who has saved us is the one who's defeated the grave. Resurrection. Easter Sunday is true. It's not just a religious holiday made up to make us all feel a little good one time a year. We celebrate it because it's true. It's reality. There is no grave in the Middle East that has the bones of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's resurrected from the dead. We have hope, eternal life found in him. And Hebrews talking about Jesus as the great high priest says we have eternal redemption in him by the blood that he shed being the atonement lamb. Some of the stuff we've been talking about throughout Leviticus. You see, grieving for a loved one is a natural part of the mourning process. The point here in Leviticus 21 is that God's redeemed people are not to grieve like those who have no hope. Our grief is to be different because Jesus is our Savior. He is resurrected, and in Him we have the hope of eternal life. The grave is not the end. Dying in Christ is actually gain, says the Apostle Paul. Truly, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. So in times of death, we can remember these gospel truths by the way spiritual leaders model the hope of eternal life we have in Jesus. Just think about the time someone near and dear to you has died. And a spiritual leader came to you. I'm talking about a spiritual leader in this sense, pastor, deacon, deaconess, community group leader. wept with you in your weeping, mourned with you in your mourning, grieved with you in your grief, but in the appropriate time said, but let us not forget the hope of the resurrection. 
and it buoyed your spirits. Or think about the time that may be a spiritual leader, a mom, a dad, brother, sister, a parent, priested you in this way, stood in the gap. You were over here, you were grieving, you were losing hope, you were losing sight. I am truly going to miss. And you just were not quite able to, to see Jesus clearly in the hope of the resurrection. And when that person came to you, that parent, to that child, that husband, to that wife, that neighbor, to the neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, quietly wept with them, priesting them in that moment, praying for them, and in the appropriate time said, can I point you to one who has defeated death and remind you of this? What was going on in that moment? In that moment, the spiritual leader was living a life worthy of imitation, set apart from the world so that the world in that moment could see Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. So that is one way that spiritual leaders can live holy lives worthy of imitation. The second way there in the first 15 verses looks like this. Living holy lives worthy of imitation means spiritual leaders will represent God's design in marriage. So remember, in this chapter, there's a hundred different ways that Moses could have went to say spiritual leaders are called to holy lives worthy of imitation. He says, let me just show you what it looks like in mourning of death. Let me show you what it looks like in the realm of marriage. Same thing. He's going to talk about marriage that relates to the priests in verses 7 through 9. And then what does it mean for the chief priest in verses 13 through 15? So look in your Bible, verse 7. For priests, what does this mean with God's design of marriage, they shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Now, I just want to hit pause here, put a little, put a little parenthesis. I, I, what this is not saying is that nobody can do this. It's, it's not saying that if you are a prostitute and God has redeemed you and you're no longer a prostitute, that like you're, just, you're just bound to be marriedless forever. Right? Or if you've been defiled in some way sexually, or that you've been divorced from your husband, there is no hope for you to have marriage whatsoever. It's just saying that for priests, the way they will stand out is different and set apart is this is for them. You are not to marry in this way. Jump down to verse 13. Notice again the standards for the chief priests were higher. He shall take a wife in her virginity. So the only one he can marry is someone who is a virgin. A widow, divorced woman, a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people. So in the realm of marriage, Old Testament priests couldn't approach this institution however they desired. They were bound to live in a set-apart way not only in how they mourned death, but also in how they went about as someone who is married. Marriage is God's design, and as such, these priests were called to exemplify what marriage was intended to be. That's why there's these prohibitions. These prohibitions for the priest and the chief priest were God's call to say, basically, go back to Genesis chapter 2 to understand what marriage was intended to be and designed to be way before sin ever entered the picture, 
And that is what I'm calling you to do and how you should live so that when people look at you, they can actually see a Genesis 2 picture of what God intended for marriage. One man, one woman, until in death they part. So in the same way, bring that principle forward to you, me, spiritual leaders, priests of the royal priesthood in Christ Jesus. We have the same call to represent God's design in marriage. Our standard for what marriage is and our standard for who can be married is not our idea. It's truly God's idea. The reason why we as born-again men and women Say what we say, believe what we believe, articulate what we articulate concerning marriage is not because we are just making it up out of thin air. We're truly saying this is what God has said about it. And we are walking in his ways. One of the greatest arguments for God's design is when his royal priesthood of Jesus followers submit their marriage to God's rules and God's ways. Listen. A set-apart marriage, or you could say a holy marriage, right? To be holy is to be set apart. A marriage that is holy, set apart, a marriage that is centered on Jesus is a marriage worthy of imitation because marriage done in submission to God's good design, it ultimately proclaims the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about marriage defined by the world today. Like I'm talking like June 2022. It is not according to God's design. So one of the way that you, me, royal priests in the Jesus priesthood, because we've been redeemed and pulled into that as those who have been, been born again, one of the ways that we can live lives that are truly holy, lives that are set apart, that actually point others to Jesus is through marriage. When one man, one woman say, I do, until they depart in death, stands out like a sore thumb in this world today, does it not? But we don't do this in order to take our fingers and poke it into the chest of others and get all red-faced and veiny-necked and like trying to gloat over others. We are called to walk in this way because when a husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church and when the wife submits to her husband like the church submits to Christ, Ephesians 5, the outside world looks in and says, what is the deal with that relationship? What's the deal with that with that marriage? Why is it different? What's at the center of this particular marriage that's not at the center of all the other marriages? And for the royal priests and the royal priesthood, the difference is Christ is at the center. And because Christ is at the center, it doesn't mean marriage is perfect. Amen? Amen. Yeah, I've, I've biffed it quite a bit in my marriage. But what happens even then in the failure of the royal priests? You and me in Christ, when our marriage is biffed, what do we do? We step back and say, that's why you need to see Jesus. You even need to see Jesus in a relationship designed to point to Jesus. It's all meant to point to him. So much like mourning and death, when spiritual leaders have exemplary, exemplary marriages worthy of imitation, what happens is we become gospel witnesses to a world that needs to see Jesus, okay? So that's point number one. We are called, spiritual leaders are called to live lives worthy of imitation. Now, there's a thousand other things, like I said, that you can put in there. 
but just think about it. The way we mourn death, death's a big deal in our culture. When we do it different, it stands out. Marriage, a creation institution, foundational to our society. When we say no to the world and yes to Yahweh's design in it, it stands out as different. And it becomes an image or it comes a way to point to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So spiritual leaders would be worthy of imitation, but also point number two, final point here, spiritual leaders are uniquely holy. That's what you see in the back half of the chapter. So verses 16 down to 24, spiritual leaders are uniquely holy. That is, they are unique because they are truly set apart. So think of this. While it is true that all Christians are part of God's royal priesthood, that's what we've been talking about, right? This, that, fr- that front half, is an, I'm arguing it's not just applied to someone like me, pastor of a church. It's applied to all of us because we are God's royal priesthood. So while it's true that all Christians are part of God's royal priesthood, and in this sense, spiritual leaders, it is also true that God has chosen some to be spiritual leaders of the church. Again, you look at Old Testament Everyone is called to be holy, but there were those people, the Levites, who were called to be priests. And in this sense, there are some who are called out among the people of God to be spiritual leaders of the church, to be these pastors, to be these deacons. And the message of Leviticus 21 tells us that those who are spiritual leaders in this sense, spiritual leaders of God's people, they are called to meet certain standards of holiness. We see this in the Old Testament, and then we see it in a similar way in the New Testament. So look at verse 16. Verse 16, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron. Here's how these priests are going to be uniquely set apart. None of your offspring, Aaron, throughout their generations, who has a blemish. So he's talking about physical blemishes here, may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. What kind of blemishes? Well, blemishes such as this. A man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. So for the Old Testament priests, notice that all of these were physical requirements, something to do with their physical body. And there were certain physical requirements to be met in order to serve before the holy God. Now, again, you read this and you're like, man, that's how lame of that is God. Like, well, they probably have a crushed hand, not because he wanted it. Maybe an accident happened to that priest. Now his hand's crushed or maybe his face is mutilated. This is something that happened to him. Now what you're saying is like, right, these priestly things can't, can't be be done and performed by by this man. But it's important to know that when you read this standard, this requirement, physical in nature for the Old Testament priest, this wasn't a judgment of worth. This wasn't God saying, you're unworthy now all of a sudden. What you need to know is that this physical requirements, these are statements, they're symbolism going on there. They're symbols being made. Remember, God is holy. God is without blemish. So to represent the fact of God's perfection, only what was unblemished could come into his presence. 
Thus, the Old Testament priests were to have no visible imperfections as a sign, as a symbol for people to say, this one who is dedicated to worshiping God and standing in the gap between people and God, there's a sense in which we should look at them and go, look at how their lives are unblemished in a physical sense, and look at what that teaches us and tells us about our holy God. Now, I love this, verse 22. Notice that this does not mean a priest with any of these imperfections was completely disowned. Like you were on the inn, hand gets crushed, face mutilated, it's like, boop, you completely lost your livelihood, get out of here. He doesn't do that. Verse 22 says that while the priest had these imperfections, he may still eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things. In other words, he is still a priest. He didn't lose his priestly living is priestliness because of this imperfection it just means the verse continues he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for i am the lord who sanctifies him it just means this he cannot go before a holy god with his imperfections because then he'd be saying something untrue about the god he's been called to worship now, while the Old Testament held God's spiritual leaders to a higher standard of physical requirements, you do not see this in the New Testament. Ministry withheld for physical requirements. But what we do see is that spiritual leaders in the New Testament who are called to serve the church are called to a higher standard of spiritual requirements, of character requirements. So while there is no restriction on people with bodily defects serving in ministry in the New Testament, there are spiritual defects, I guess you could say, which if left unattended would disqualify a person from that leadership. So for instance, you go into 1 Timothy 3, you go into Titus chapter 1, and what you discover is the Apostle Paul laying out not a list of physical requirements that qualifies someone to be a pastor, but you see a list of spiritual requirements for the person who's to be elder, pastor, overseeing Christ's church. Like what? Like this. This leader is to be a man called by God, not called by man. This leader is to be above reproach, meaning they're morally upright, exclusive in their romantic relationships, a one-woman man. They're to be rational, that is, not easily swayed. They're to be self-controlled and disciplined, to be respected in the church and community, to be friendly and giving, able to appropriately communicate God's word, not addicted to vices, responds with love and not anger. The spiritual leader is to not seek debates or arguments. They're not materialistic, but a giver. Husbands and fathers, their family well a mature and humble Christ follower involved in and respected by the secular community, is passionate for good and hates evil, is upright and trustworthy, growing in godliness and holiness, able to defend God's word and rebuke false teaching. It continues in James chapter 3, verse 1, where God says explicitly that he holds spiritual leaders in the church to a higher standard when he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
And the list further expands in 1 Peter chapter 5, where the apostle exhorts elders in Christ's church to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. End of spiritual requirements. A higher standard, yes? And we see that this is a good thing. That if there is a man, I'm talking pastor here specifically, an elder, who comes and no longer we're looking at physical requirements, but meets these spiritual requirements, we see this as a gift from God. Because this man who is leading the people of God is doing what in this moment? There's a sense in which he's priesting, remember? He's standing in the, he's saying, let me show you what Jesus is like. And I'm going to show you what Jesus is like by walking in obedience, by being above reproach, by being a one-woman man, by being rational, not easily swayed. Down the list, 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 down the list. Why are we doing this? It's so that those who are called specifically to be spiritual leaders can stand before the people of God, not in and of themselves, but in weakness, leaning on Christ in humility, say, I'm here in weakness to show you who Jesus is. Right? So what does all this mean? To sum it all up, I think it can mean two things. First, it means this, that the qualifications for spiritual leaders such as elder are not external but internal. All right? That's just a truth that we can say. Qualifications for spiritual leaders. I'm talking like elders, right? Things like this. It's an issue of God's spiritual leaders having godly character traits. It's moving from the external, it's moving to the internal. Far too often, though, think of this a church can slip into Leviticus 21 mode by judging someone fit for spiritual leadership based upon the externals. How many times have we seen this in churches before, right? Where they look and say, man, that guy has this degree. This guy has this measure of learning. This guy is very charismatic. He's really good at organizational, structural leadership. He's got a CEO kind of training. He's got a lot of money in the bank. Obviously, equal sign, should be a spiritual leader within the church. My argument is when we the church at large, slip into that mode. We're slipping into Leviticus 21 mode. We're judging on the physical. We know nothing about the internal life of that spiritual leader. And what we all know is that when we put people in places of spiritual leadership based on the externals and never looking at the internals, what usually happens? The joint turns into a dumpster fire, does it not? In the New Testament, the call is not to just the externals. It's called to the internals. What is the godly character of this spiritual leader like we don't want to neglect what matters most to god about his leaders which is the the heart okay that's the first thing we can say second thing last thing we'll say is this it means spiritual leaders ultimately point to our need for jesus what is manifestly evident in the Old Testament, if you just go and read your Old Testament, what do you know about Old Testament leaders? How many of them just biff it and fall flat on their face in major ways? All of them. In some way, shape, or form, all of them. It is equally evident in the New Testament, too, that there are ways in which New Testament spiritual leaders fall and fail. 
No spiritual leader can replace Jesus. Many have tried and many have failed and brought down churches and ministries with them. When they happily say, I'm going to grab Jesus by the scruff of the neck and set him over here on the shelf and I'll tap him on the shoulder whenever I need him. What I'm going to gladly do is grab myself and put myself at the center of it all so that I can be the one who's functioning like Jesus in this moment. I mean, we've just seen it before, yeah? And it just goes south quick, fast, in a hurry. Many try to replace Jesus. Many spiritual leaders try to replace Jesus. And I'm not just talking elders, deacons, deaconesses, community group leaders. How many times have we, in our priestly call to lead others in our marriages, have said, Jesus, no thanks, I'll set you on the outskirts of my marriage. I don't want you there. Or in our parenting, we say, Jesus, no thanks, I'm going to kick you off to the side. Or living as a neighbor or living as a coworker. And what we've tried to do is replace Jesus. The moment any spiritual leader does this, takes their eyes off their Savior, they will falter and they will fail. And if you've ever been around any church long enough, you will have seen this. And what this proves is that God's people don't just need an under-shepherd. They need the chief shepherd. What this proves is that God's people don't just need a priest. What they need is the new and better high priest, Allah, the book of Hebrews. And the only person who fits this bill is Jesus Christ himself. He is the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls, says the apostle Peter. He is the true priestly mediator between God and men who gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2. So in matters of mourning, in matters of marriage, in matters of spiritual leadership, what you need to know is that we just never outstrip our need for our Savior. Can, can I just say this, and we're going to close and be done. Think of an area where you're a spiritual leader right now. For instance, if you were to ask me that question, it'd look like this. I'm a spiritual leader of this church. I'm an elder in this church. Yeah? But if you took that away, am I no longer a spiritual leader? Not according to what I've said today. I am a spiritual leader in my home as a husband. I'm a spiritual leader in my home as a daddy. I'm a spiritual leader in my neighborhood, a priest that wants to see those far from God to know God in my neighborhood, okay? My question to you again is this. Think of an area that you're a spiritual leader and then ask yourself, what is the greatest gift I could give to others as a spiritual leader in this position that I find myself in. My hope is that you would eventually come to say this. The greatest gift I can give to others as a spiritual leader in my home, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, whatever it might be, is this. The gift of weakness. The gift of weakness. The greatest thing your kids can see to you, mommy, daddy, spiritual leader, is this. Mommy and daddy don't have it all together. And mommy and daddy really need Jesus. So in their spiritual leadership, they don't come swooping in with a big M on their chest for mom and a big cape blowing in the breeze. I'm here to be Jesus for you. No, no, no. No, 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 no. You're not the Savior. You need a Savior. 
And so the greatest gift you can give to your children is this. Mommy is a sinner who's been saved by grace, and mommy needs Jesus every single day. So in my spiritual leadership of you, I'm going to point you to Jesus. Husbands can do this to wives. Wives do this to husbands. Siblings can do this to one another. We can do this to our neighbors, pastors, deacons, deaconesses, community group leaders. The greatest gift any of us can ever give to anyone else is this. Yes, it is true. By God's grace, I'm a spiritual leader in this way, fill in the blank, comma, and as a spiritual leader, I am weak and I really need Jesus. That is the absolute best gift that you could ever give to someone because what it does is it points them to the one who will what? Never, ever, ever, ever fail them. And that's what we need. The concrete foundation of the greatest chief shepherd, the greatest high priest, the greatest spiritual leader, if you want to use that language of all time, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, is my leadership this Everyone, go around, look at me. In the home, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, in the marriage, as a pastor, or is my spiritual leadership this? Look to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you recognizing our absolute need for you. And all of us as for all of us who are here in Christ, that is for all of us who have been born again, that is for all of us who have turned from sin and turned to Christ in salvation, saying, Jesus, I confess my sin, I confess my need for you to save me, and I'm trusting in you to be the Savior, then what we can say of ourselves is this. My identity is this. I am a royal priest. And that means I've got leadership I'm leading others. I'm priesting others, Lord. But what all of us know is that in our priesting, we have faltered and we have failed. We've made it about us. So, Lord, in the areas where we need to confess, would you just give us the humility to confess so that forgiveness and healing might come? And so then as forgiveness and healing comes, we can then with great joy turn right to you and look right to you and say, thank you, Jesus for being such a great chief shepherd, for being such a great, perfect high priest. You're so caring. You're not opposed to the humble. You draw near to the humble. So Lord, would you walk us in these ways of humility? Why? Ultimately, so that people can see Jesus around us. That's what our desire is. Help us to live lives worthy of imitation, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Again, so that others might see Jesus in the way we mourn in death, in the way that we walk in marriage, in the way that we walk in a, in a hundred other ways. We want the world to know Jesus. Lord, help us to be holy and set apart as you are holy and set apart. That's in your name, King Jesus, I pray. Amen.